Dissident Daughters podcast. I'm your host, Ada, and I'm here deconstructing my Mormon faith and making space for other women like me to do the same. If you don't know what a dissident daughter is, well, it's a woman who actively challenges an established political or religious system, doctrine, belief, policy, or institution. And that's why I'm here, to challenge the Mormon faith as an institution, its doctrine and policies, If you want to come along on this journey with me, stick around and we'll do some talking, laughing, maybe crying, (laughs) venting, deconstructing. We'll learn some new things, hopefully, and most importantly, be supported through this difficult journey. I'm glad you're here. now do Analyza Young because she kind of plays into that same time frame. Okay. um, The reason I chose her is because of for her her standing up for her rights and the rights of other women and for speaking out against polygamy. Yes. So she was born Analyza Webb. She was the daughter of a devout early Mormon or early Mormons Chauncey Webb and Eliza Churchill Webb. She was um, born just six months before Joseph Smith was killed. Okay. And they were they in Nauvoo. Were, they were in Nauvoo, um, or do you know? I'm not sure. They moved several times, so okay. they followed the saints. But um, she was two years old when her father married Elizabeth Taft as a second wife, and this mm. really upset her life. Mm. The, the polygamy thing did it did not sit well with her mother, and it didn't sit well with her. And she blamed the practice for its unhappy effects on her mother, even claiming that if it weren't for her children, the practice would have driven her mother to suicide. Wow. And she says, my own infant needs for care and love were the strongest tie which held mother to life, and that were it not for this, she would have committed suicide. So, and that's in her book. This um, Most of this is from Wife Number 19. Now, uh, this book is really, really good. Yeah. But you kind of have to take, because she is able to give you first-down accounts of conversations where she wasn't present. So, uh, part of me is like, you know, but... A little skeptical. Yeah, a little skeptical all about, about all the, the accuracy. But yeah. the stories are, you can tell she yeah. was you know, active in the this time frame and yeah anyway so her family moves moved west with the pioneers and settled in the salt lake valley and she loved acting and she was an eloquent speaker she married a stagehand named james ld in the endowment house at 19 years old and ironically um brigham young performed that marriage Ooh, interesting. Yeah, I okay. know, right? <laughs> marriage shortly, it, their marriage shortly turned sour, abusive, and, and he cheated on her. Mm. And and she was so against polygamy that she that she was not going to tolerate that. I, I relate to her. So. Yeah. And then during a visit of her, her parents, when she was pregnant with her second child, her husband tried to choke her in their oh presence. Oh, my gosh. And Anne's mother was so mad and she packed her up and they moved her back with them in wow. South Cottonwood. And so so she divorced that husband. She was very attractive and had many marriage offers, which she refused them, stating, I have my children. I shall live for them alone. They are mm-hmm. my only loves. Wow. So, but Brigham Young, of course, was smitten with Anne while visiting South <laughs> Cottonwood on business for the church. And Anne's brother was in some kind of business dealing with Brigham Young and had had to file bankruptcy. 
So, anyway, um, Brigham offered to help in exchange for Anne's hand in marriage. Oh, my gosh. She was basically sold. Wow. (laughs) She was purchased. By her brother. Okay. She was also promised a sum of money, clothing, and a house in Salt Lake City. So she insisted that there was something in this for her. Yeah. So, which she never really got. But anyway. So she became the, the 19th wife of Brigham Young at the age of 25, and he was in his 60s. Oh, in his barf. late 60s. Barf. Late 60s. I know. That is so gross. Ooh. Anyway, so at the time, there was this thing called the forest farm. Okay. You about that. Where certain, the, the wives would take, of uh, Brigham Young would take turns going to this farm, and they would make all of the, oh. the cheese and yes. the butter and everything for all of his family, all of his wives and all of his family. Well, at 26 years old, it was Anne's turn on the farm, and she absolutely hated it. Mm-hmm. And that she was happier when her mother came to live with her on this farm, but she still hated the and farm. And I life. heard this was the farm where Brigham sent the wives he didn't like. The older ones, usually. <laughs> oh, yeah, because they weren't attractive. <laughs> and, and then the one the one that he took to, to St. George with him was the one that didn't have children, because I'm sure he didn't want to travel with kids and Oh, yeah. interesting. Anyway, yeah. Okay. In 1873, she was moved to another house, but Brigham Young said she, he could she could no longer keep her mother because he wouldn't support her, her mom. Oh. And so she had to take in boarders. Mm. And two of the boarders that came in were these Methodist with this Methodist couple and they opened Anne's eyes. Um she had never seen anything but you know, this kind of life. And so they spent much time discussing religious philosophy and her position as a polygamous wife and showed her how abused she truly was. Um, She became increasingly disenchanted with her life as a neglected and overworked wife of Brigham Young. Mm -hmm. The final straw. This is what kills me, though. I mean, she was moved from her home. Her mother was kicked out. Her Anyway, all of these things. But the final straw was she wanted a stove, and he said no. (laughs) (laughs) She was tired of trying to feed these boarders without a stove, and he refused. And so she sold the household belongings and began divorce proceedings. I'm like, yeah. Interesting. Um, he offered her $15,000 and her freedom if she would drop the suit and just go away. Oh, because she was going to sue him. Oh, yeah. As a, the divorce was going to be a legal proceeding. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. anyway, um, but she rejected the offer. She did. Uh-huh. Speaking of the refusal, she said, not merely for myself, but also on behalf of all women dissatisfied with their polygamous marriages. She began lecturing on her experiences as a polygamous wife. Speaking of an address she gave on December 5th, 1873, she said, I forgot myself in subject and the new and the new indignation thrilled me as I told my story of bondage, such as my hearers never dreamed of, and unveiled the horrors of the Mormon religion. Wow. So you can kind of imagine what a non-LDS person uh-huh. would, I mean, you'd be eating it up. I mean, uh-huh. I'd be grabbing that magazine off the shelf. Yeah, you right. Know what I mean? Totally. So, anyway, she traveled with a group of lecturers, which ah. I think because um, she does travel with the suffragists, too. Oh, okay. So, I think she probably crossed paths with yeah, yeah. some of these other yeah. women. Yeah. Um, and she was lecturing about the evils of polygamy. In 1875, she published her autobiography, Wife Number 19, which denounces both polygamy and the Mormon church and condemns Brigham Young as a tyrannical leader. Wow. She, oh, 
You, so that yeah. was clear back in 1875 mm-hmm. she published that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And for a woman to publish back then, yeah, first of all, you've got to find a publisher <laughs> yeah. that will take a woman. But anyway, she... I think that was amazing. She continued to lecture until the passage of the Edmonds Act in 1882. Ah, okay. And then she married a couple more times and then just basically disappeared. A few accounts said she died as a pauper. Interesting. So, Did she have any children? Uh-huh. She had two sons, I think. But, but from not what I Brigham? understand, no, they were not Brigham's, if I remember okay. right. They were from her first marriage. But from what I understand... She was estranged from her children at the end of her life, too. Oh, so there's there's more that I would need to yeah. read up on her. I mean, yeah. And I've read her book. It's really, really good. But it doesn't talk about the end of her life. Well, yeah. So anyway. Interesting. Um, I wanted to read the dedication. So okay. at, at the beginning of the book, she says she's dedicating this to the Mormon women. It says, I ah. dedicate this book to you as I consecrate my life to your cause. As long as God gives me life, I shall pray and plead for your deliverance from the worse than Egyptian bondage in which you are held. I know. Is that awesome? That's amazing. So anyway, she's... The worse than Egyptian bondage. Worse than Egyptian bondage. Wow. (laughs) So anyway. I always find it so fascinating because so many of the polygamous wives don't have negative things to say about Mm. it. And I just tend to kind of chalk that up to them being brainwashed into Mm -hmm. thinking it's God's yeah, it's it, God's it's, plan. it was they're fulfilling their duty and yeah. earning their exaltation. And yeah. yeah. Yep. It makes me sad. That's why when the activists say, it's none of your business if people want to be in a polygamous relationship, yeah. that's between two consenting adults. I totally agree. If yes. If. They weren't raised that way. Yeah. Because if they were raised that way, they really ha- know nothing else. Right. And if it's, if it's they, abuse. If they it's, are told that their salvation depends on it, mm-hmm. that's not consent. Yeah. Yeah. That's I coercion. Agree. That's coercion. Yes. And yeah. that's where the problem is. Because so, you're right. Yeah. I agree that consenting adults can yeah. do whatever the hell yeah. they want. Yeah, and I totally agree. If I just have a really hard time yeah. believing that they are actually consenting right. adults. Because Especially if they were raised in it, mm-hmm. they're not consenting adults. They never achieved an adult brain. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because... Yeah. Yeah. Because they can't. Well, and especially when they marry him at 16, Mm -hmm. they have not. Or younger. Or younger. Yeah. Yeah. We know of lots younger. Yeah. Ooh, so interesting. Okay. I love her. I love her. Analyza Young, right? That's, that was her name. Okay. Yes. Wife number 19. Interesting. Okay. So we are going to go a little bit more ahead from my last one in terms of time frame. And we, I'm going to talk about Juanita Brooks. Have you heard of her? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure everybody's heard her name. But she was born in 1898 in Bunkerville, Nevada. So do you know what Bunkerville, Nevada is famous for? No. <laughs> it's, the, it's famous for uh, it's the home of the Bundy family. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's Bunkerville. So Levitt was her maiden name. Yeah, so Levitt. Any, Remember the name yeah, Levitt? Yes. I have ties to Levitt. Oh, you do? <laughs> so you might be related to Juanita. Family members. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So no, I'm um, not related, but anyway. Oh, yes, okay. You yes, have ties. Yes. Yeah. So. so there were six girls in her family. She was kind of a tomboy. She uh, took care of horses. She liked to work on the farm. She didn't fit in with the girls. She was always embarrassed at how she looked. Um, she didn't like her face. She got teased um, about her oh, looks. She sad. had like some crooked teeth and maybe kind of a crooked smile a little bit. But she she would say quite often, like in her journals and things, that she did not like how she looked. And she was very self-conscious about her face. So I thought that was kind of interesting. 
she, at one time in her early years, she loved her school teacher so much that she wanted to become a teacher. So that really inspired her to try to, to, to become a teacher one day. In her younger ages, a lot of this, it's hard to know exactly what time frame it was or how old she was, but she was introduced to a man named Nephi Johnson. And you may have heard that name before too, but he was in her ward as like, you know, he was an elderly gentleman in her ward. Did they even call him wards then? I don't know. But in her congregation, I'm not sure when they started calling him wards, but he was in her congregation. He was an elderly gentleman. She was a young woman. He was a really kind and kind of grandfatherly figure to her. And shortly before he died, he talked to her about how he had been part of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And you know that everyone that was involved in the Mountain Meadows Massacre was sworn to secrecy. So these men carried this story through their lives and never talked about Mm -hmm. it, right? So she, she said that he seemed like he was haunted. And when he would talk about it, he would literally like go to another place. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like his eyes. Mm -hmm. So she said that actually they got to be really close. And she tells a story about on his deathbed that he yelled out blood, 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 and then fell back to the bed and died. That that was his final Really? Yeah. So she got this just got her so curious. She wanted to study about the massacre. So she had heard little bits and pieces, but whenever she tried to ask questions, she was silenced and she was told, we don't talk about that, right? Her grandfather, she found out, had also been a part of the massacre. He was a levit. Um, her hu- husband died 15 months after they were married. And she was already, she they already had a child. So she has a small little baby. Her husband dies. He died from cancer, which is so interesting is because weird. it wasn't yeah. that common yeah. then. It probably was, but they didn't maybe. identify it. Yeah, maybe you're right. They didn't have the tools. To yeah, identify it. I bet you're right. So he died of cancer. She is a very young widow. I want to say in her early 20s. Um, and now she's got to support her family, right? So she goes on. Um, she gets as much education as she can. She um, ends up being single for a whole decade. But she really kind of thrived in Mormonism because they were her community. They were her tribe. They were her village that helped raise her baby. And um, she went on to teach school. She talks about how the Mountain Meadows Massacre keeps coming up to the forefront of her mind where she wants to study it and learn about it. And she realizes as she's trying to figure out who were the participants of this massacre, that so many of them They either changed their names because it was such a blight Mm -hmm. on their family name or they would leave the country. So that's why so little was known early on about this. So not to mention the swearing them to secrecy. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And it was such a shame filled topic and nobody would talk about it. So she was determined to know more about this. So let's see. She started collecting pioneer diaries. She was a part of the Relief Study presidency. I'm not sure if she was the president, but she was one of them. The general presidency? No, just oh, like in okay. her in her ward, right? Okay. And she lived, she was in southern Utah, so she was like in the Washington County area um, by this time. So she started collecting pioneer di- diaries. She got other sisters in the Relief Society to help her. And together, they collected and transcribed over 450 diaries from different oh. pioneer people. Awesome. pioneers yeah so almost everything that we know 
about like the Mormon frontier past or pioneer history is because of her efforts to collect all of these diaries and transcribe them and write them down. So she found ways to employ women who couldn't work otherwise because they weren't so allowed to work. she did it for the church, though, right? She did not do it for the Ooh. church. No. this. Where she, is this collection? I know. She involved <laughs> the church because she that was her community. But it wasn't an assignment by the church. They were not backing her. They were not supporting it in any way. This was her own endeavor that she got lots of other sisters to help with, Okay. I'm not sure. That's a great question. I want to find that. Yeah. Where those transcribed yeah. diaries are. Road trip. Right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So she she felt really strongly about helping to employ women who couldn't otherwise work. Because if you had a husband, you were not allowed to work during that mm-hmm. time. Because mm-hmm. those jobs had to be saved for men. Mm-hmm. Right? So, but she found other ways. So she, in part of this transcribing diaries, somehow they did it for money. I don't know if they, like the family members had them, like allowed them to take the diary so that they could transcribe them so they could be produced, like more produced for other members of the right. family or something. Right. Oh, I find this fascinating. Yeah. Because that's what I want to do yeah. in my retirement so let's, years. So let's look into her more because yeah. I don't, I don't know all the things, but she was a member of the Democratic Party. And people hated her because of it. She had, okay, oh, this is just a, a random story. She had a blonde baby, very light-skinned blonde baby with her second husband. She eventually married 10 years later. And he was very dark, dark hair, dark eyes. She happened to be walking down the street one day, and a man passed her and said, well, that can't be Will's baby, which was her husband. And this was her response. Well, it sure as hell isn't yours. <laughs> She, she I wish I could out. think that quick. Right? You know? It sure as hell isn't yours. This was just a funny story. Um, she did a lot of activism against the government. So Will Brooks was her husband who she married. He was the sheriff. And they ran the B Motel. Um, she never talked about her faith. She loved the people. And she felt driven to speak the truth, even if it was negative towards the church. She had one child with that um, with her first husband that died 15 mm-hmm. months later. Mm-hmm. And then um, with Will Brooks, she had four more boys. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm getting this screwed up. Will Brooks had four boys when they married. Oh, okay. And then they had four more children. So altogether, there was nine Nine. children. Okay. She was faithful to the people in the church, but especially in her later years, she turned down callings. She stopped going to church. And she published the book about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Mm -hmm. That's the only how I know her. Is yes, that I didn't know. She this was other the stuff. first to publish a book about it. Okay, and at the time that she was going to publish this book, she was afraid that she was going to be exed, and she even voiced that fear of like, I sure hope they don't excommunicate me, but I have to tell the truth. And she decided I'm doing it anyways, mm-hmm. even if they do. Well, what ended up happening is when she published the book, it was radio silence. It was like. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody talked about it. So then she went on to write a biography of John D. Lee, who was the one who was blamed for the whole thing. Yes, Uh he was a part of it, but he was the only one that took the fall. Uh Yeah. He was assassinated. Or not assassinated. What's the word? Yeah. um, Um, Executed. executed. Uh When she was getting ready to publish the biography of John D. Lee, the descendants of Lee told her that after her book, 
the church was going to reinstate Lee in the church because, you know, he was excommunicated. Yeah. He was blamed for mm-hmm. the whole thing. Like, they had nothing to do with yeah. it. The Mountain Mountains Massacre. So they told her this, that, that he was going to be reinstated. And so she wanted to add that to the end of the book. She wanted to say that the church mm-hmm. was going to do this. And they told her, no, if you put that in the book, then they will withdraw their reinstatement. They will not reinstate Oh, him. my gosh. Yes. So they fought back and forth about this whole, like, whether she was going to say that they were reinstating her or not. So in the end, she decided to, she told them that she would not put that in there. She agrees to leave that out of the first edition. And they agree. Oh, smart. Okay, so yeah. the first edition, she only prints a thousand copies of that first edition and she gave them to all of his family and she immediately push, published smart woman. a second edition. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Cost her more money. But, I'm sure. Yeah, huh. but she's like, we need. they need to know about this. So she is revered by the general church, but she was very disenchanted from the church and she she did not pull any punches she was very progressive for her time. She fought for civil rights in the 60s. She was a very outspoken advocate of women's rights. And in the end of her life, she was very disenchanted with the church. She went totally inactive. She never spoke out against the church, but there were several quotes of her talking about that the only reason was because she loved the people. And I think the Meadows... Mountain Meadows Massacre was a huge part of that, a huge part of her kind of losing her testimony of those early church leaders and what they did mm-hmm. and how this all came about. Mm-hmm. She was just very outspoken. Now, I have not read her book, but now I really want to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was so the end of her story. So she was never excommunicated? No, she was I not. I thought a, she was. She thought she was going to be, but she never huh. was. Interesting. Yeah. See? And she even said that the radio silence she received was almost worse than being excommunicated yeah. because they just said nothing. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. That's yeah. always so uncomfortable. I thought that was interesting. Okay. Well, my next one is Fawn Brody. And Ooh. she is one of my favorite because when I was deconstructing, I didn't read a book that didn't at least use her as a source. Oh, right. You know what I mean? She it was is like, the source. Yeah, she is the original source. Yeah. So, Even anyway. for a lot of the um, Gospel Topics essays, mm-hmm. they, they source her, source her yeah. which is ironic as we'll yeah. hear. Okay, go yeah. ahead. So anyway, she was born in 1915, and she was born to the McKay family. Her, her dad was Thomas McKay, and her mom was Von Brimhall. Um, She grew up in Huntsville. Both her parents descended from the family, this influential family, but they were poor. Mm. So the home that they lived in in Huntsville was actually a family-owned home, and they did did not personally own the home. And so she grew up kind of in poverty. Mm. Um, Her dad was actually assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and her uncle was President David O. McKay. Yes. So... She, and I really, it's really weird because I got to know her writing because when I was in college, I did a research paper on Thomas Jefferson and his, and his um, children that were actually black, the the children Uh he had with his black slave. Anyway, and I used her book, but did not realize, you know, until later on that this was the same, the same lady. Yeah. So anyway, she's. 
the very good researcher. And that's the thing in in her book. So she she wrote the No Man Knows No My History, Life of Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. It is so well researched yes. that when when I read uh, somebody that's trying to break it down or you know negate it mm-hmm. it's just like oh please yeah do do some homework uh-huh. at least take her lead yeah. you know what i mean there mm-hmm. i have not read one good um that that's trying to refute what, what, she, says. what she says because yeah. they just they don't do their work yeah anyway so it, they were they lived in in poverty but she was extremely intelligent and at one time, because of the whooping cough, cough yeah. epidemic, she was homeschooled. And so her her mother was her teacher, but she was really smart. In fact, she entered school early when she did enter school. And she, I'm pretty sure she had her master's by 20. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. She was like, so she went to, let's see. She was actually kind of engaged to Dilworth Jensen, who her family. Oh, I'm sorry. That name's so unfortunate. <laughs> Yes, it is. Hell? That is. It I is. Have, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, that's just fine. I, we can't it is. just gloss over that name. We- <laughs> so, so it's kind of a, the Jensens. So they're Scandinavian, and her yep. family was kind of not racist. You wouldn't call racist when it's Scandinavian, yeah. but they were just kind of bigots about this thing. They didn't huh. want her, that and they her, were immigrants to the yeah. United they were States, immigrants, and, which and almost they everybody were just, was. I know so exactly on. right. But anyway, they were kind of against him. Part of the reason they were against him is because her sister eloped with his brother, who was oh, not. That's a, really what it was not about. A good standing, and they had had enough of this. What was his name? Oh, Dilbert. No, <laughs> Flora. Let's see, Jensen's brother. It does not say what his name was. We'll have to research yeah. that. But it's anyway, just as ridiculous he was as a bit of a scoundrel, and, yeah. and they did not like him. And so they, I, they probably just said it's because he's Scandinavian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so they didn't like this relationship, and he was on a mission when she was at Weber, but it was at the time just a two-year college. Okay. So she finished at Weber, and she was. They were still pretty serious, and then um, she. Um, went on to go into a master's program at the University of Chicago where she met her husband and his last name was Brody and he's Jewish. And that they was probably like, weren't happy about uh, yeah. that. Can you imagine? They oh, probably went, man. We'll take the Scandinavian. Yeah, no kidding. Anyway. So um, some somewhere in there she broke it off. Did she meet the Brody guy first and then break it off with I the Jensen guy? I don't know for sure, okay. but she did break it off with the Jensen guy. Okay. And she earned her master's degree in 1936 at the age of 21. So Wow. Um, and she lost her faith religion entirely in 1973 1975 she recalled it was like taking a hot coat off in the summertime the sense of liberation i had at the university of chicago so it was at the university of chicago that she started to, to started question, to question. i felt very quickly that i could not go back to my old life and i never did she continued to write to jensen until shortly before she married Ooh. bernard brody so yeah okay. it was just a Okay. Anyway, on her gra- oh, she married Brody on her graduation day. He must have oh, been a body. Wow. Well. <laughs> anyway, and he was the son of Jewish immigrants, so okay. they were actually yeah. So she was up until that time. They she was described as a very faithful. Mm-hmm. She was a good girl, mm-hmm. very tall. She was described as tall. 
So after she and Brody married, it was during the Depression. So mm-hmm. That would have been, well, yeah, yeah, right in the throat of the yeah. Depression. And so she took a, a job at the um, University of Chicago Library, mm. the Harper Library of the University of Chicago. And she began researching the origins of the Book of Mormon. And oh, by mid-1939, she confided to her uncle, Dean Brimhall, which would have been her mother's brother, okay. who was an ex-Mormon, that she intended to write a scholarly biography on Joseph Smith. Progress toward that goal was slowed by the birth of their first child. Of course, right. that's what yep. we, you know. <laughs> and by three rapid moves, um, consequence, her husband was extremely intelligent and he was in some kind of weapons research kind of thing or something anyway um and so but she eventually got to to write this this book and so she lied (laughs) this was so funny she lied to gain access to the church archives and she she actually said that she was the daughter of brother she was brother mckay's daughter Okay. And I think she was. I mean, that's not technically not a lie, but I think right. she made them think she was David, David McKay's, McKay's daughter. daughter. Anyway, so or her dad was David O's brother. Brother. Right? So mm-hmm. she, it wasn't technically was a lie. high up in the church yeah. too. So so and maybe she did just say that she was Brother McKay's daughter, meaning her dad, you know, because yeah. he was higher up in there. But she gained access to some highly restricted materials. Ooh-wee. Pursuit of little known documents eventually attracted the attention of her David her uncle David O'Mac. Okay. And after a, a painful counter with her uncle, Brody promised never again to consult material in the church archives. So she did all of her research for this book uh, without going into the church archives. So wow. anyway, which I'm sure she wasn't allowed in anyway. Yes. So, um, so in this, No Man Knows My History, Brody presents the young Joseph as lazy he was lazy. <laughs> he was he always was trying to find make up story. a yes. way to yes to avoid the work. Mm-hmm. Good natured, extroverted, and unsuccessful treasure seeker. In an attempt to improve his family's fortune, he developed the notion of the golden plates and then the concept of a religious novel, the Book of Mormon, based in part by the view of the Hebrews. It's more than not just part. Have yeah. you read that? I haven't read View of the Hebrews, but I uh, I've read the comparisons of all the themes that are mm-hmm. that are the same. Yeah, and it, there's no question he used that. As, I, oh yeah, I read I read it and I did sticky notes and everywhere oh. that was like, oh, that sounds just like the, you know. Yeah, and that thing is just sticky noted. It, it, oh, it looks interesting. Like one big sticky note. So. Yeah. Anyway. So in May of 1946, the church um, excommunicated her. She never tried to regain her membership. So wait, sorry, can I stop you? Mm-hmm. Say that date again. Um, May 1946. They excommunicated her. And was that before or so, after the book came out? No, it was after the book. Okay. So, so how soon after the book? Um, let, not sorry, real. I, let's see. I'm going to have to look up that. Okay. Oh, let's see. Her biography of Joseph Smith in 1944. Okay, so two years and later, it was published in forty five. Oh, published in forty five. So, and, and we're so talking next year. We're talking end of World War Two there too. So that would yeah. have been tough because yeah. printing was really hard to get into at that right. time. And so, so she publishes this book, mm-hmm. and a year later, and she's a year later she is excommunicated, okay. and she felt like that it was her uncle who had driven the excommunication, okay. even though everything in there, the church no longer denies. Right, it's all you know true. What I mean? It's all true. But no, they excommunicated her for that for exposing at, at the, time. the truth. Uh huh. And she said she does um, say that 
she still went to family gatherings and stuff. They have a, really? a reunion in Huntsville every year or did. Wow. Um, and she said that it was, they just kind of graciously ignored one another. <laughs> she and her, David and McKay. So anyway, so Newell Bright Br- Bringhurst okay. actually wrote a biography on her, oh. on her life. And he did a Mormon stories. I think it's number 1498. Noel interview. Bringhurst. Okay, mm-hmm. I've heard that and name. And it is, it was um, October 29th of 2021 when he did the interview. So it's not too long ago. Okay. And it it's an excellent interview. So okay. you listen to it. I need to listen to that. Of, she was an amazing um, woman. Because one question that I have about her is, like, I want to know more about this excommunication. Mm-hmm. Like, did they originally, because like with... Um, who was the, uh, Margaret Toscano, mm-hmm. they first kind of threatened her and mm-hmm. said, you need to pull back from this. You need to stop doing this or we'll excommunicate you. I wonder if she received any sort of I don't warning so. in the I same don't way. I don't think so because at her, she did not attend her excommunication because she was, she was either having a problem pregnancy or mm. she was late in her pregnancy, maybe. Mm. And um, so she did not go to the so excommunication they just, hearing. Yeah, so they and said, so they just sent her a letter saying you've been excommunicated. <sighs> but she never tried to rejoin. She did not believe. Yeah. And so she never tried to rejoin her. It, it didn't affect her. She does, does say that um, it upset her because of the way it affected her family. Well, yeah, yeah. of and course. She was, she was a very soft-spoken And she woman. was, was telling like, the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's what angers so, me about it. Yeah. And now... So the truth is evil. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's so funny because when the church tries to tell the truth, they they use her as a source. Yes. Oh, I know. She is cited yeah. as a source in multiple yes. gospel topic essays. Yes. I remember reading the ones that tried to debunk it. And I'm just like, you don't even hold a candle to this woman. Mm. You need to... You know, learn how to research and, right. you know, go back to school. Interesting. <laughs> anyway, so that's her. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. She is fantastic. So next we're going to talk about Sandra, Sandra Tanner, who I just think is the OG of mm-hmm. anti-Mormons, right? Like, <laughs> I love her. I love her. Uh, so she was born in 1941 in Salt Lake City, but she was raised... Um, in California, actually, for the main part, most part, she was a fifth generation Mormon, and she is the great great granddaughter of Brigham Young. Did you know that? I I did know that. She's yeah. the great great dan- granddaughter. <laughs> okay, maybe we've been talking too long because my I'm like saying all these words dumbly. Okay, so as a teenager, she really started struggling with some of the theological things about Mormonism. She had tons of questions. And she could not find the answers. So in an attempt at resolution, she enrolled in a Mormon Institute of Religion class. So she desperately sought answers to questions concerning polygamy, the denial of priesthood to African-Americans, and the LDS claim to being the only true church. She asked so many questions in this class. She was just constantly hand raised. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And eventually, or very soon after joining the class, she was taken aside and told by the instructor to stop asking disturbing questions. Oh my gosh, that just drives me crazy. She, if you have nothing to hide, why do 
why do exactly or why are questions bad? You know, yep. and that was the word he used: disturbing questions. Like she was causing other people to question stuff because she was asking right. questions. So they told her to stop. So she quit going to the class. <laughs> So Sandra came to visit her grandmother in Salt Lake City, and it was at that time that she met Gerald, and they instantly connected in in their common search for answers, and together they studied the Book of Mormon, the Bible, they read sermons from early LDS church leaders, they read the Journal of Discourses. I mean, these guys were no slouches. They were serious about learning all the stuff. It's a 26-volume set of books, which, yeah, is just crazy. So... Then they made their way to documents and LDS church archives, all this stuff. Of course, everything she found and learned shocked her. And she learned, among other things, that numerous church leaders had often reiterated the claim that polygamy would never be taken from the church or else the church would fall into apostasy. There are multiple quotes about this, right? So she was like, gain exaltation without it. Right. And so she's like, well, wait a second. We're not practicing polygamy anymore. Like, these things just were not adding up. Mm -hmm. She was particularly horrified to read about Brigham Young condoning blood atonement, Mm -hmm. using the example that if a man finds his wife involved in adultery, that he would be justified in putting a javelin through her Mm -hmm. heart. Sandra and Gerald were married two and a half months after meeting. (laughs) And he was already out of the church, right? He was already very much questioning the church. Yes. And I think he maybe had officially left. In fact, they weren't married by the church. They were were married by a different pastor of a different church. Yeah. So by this time, he had totally lost his faith. She was right behind him, basically. They believed that the Book of Mormon, they felt that the Book of Mormon didn't meet the standards of historical authenticity. And this quote by her says, our continued research pointed its story to a novel from the 1820s. Mm-hmm. So they both kind of came to that conclusion. They asked LDS church leaders to remove their names from membership roles, but they didn't do that. What they ended up doing was excommunicating them two years later. So they asked to be they asked to yeah. resign. The church did not allow them to resign. They officially excommunicated. I have a friend I just talked to Monday that happened to her, too. Really? Mm-hmm. What in the yeah. hell? Because they want to be in control. They want to be in control. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. in 1964, they started the Lighthouse Ministries. I believe it was originally called something different. but um, And it was originally in the front room of their home on West Temple in like 13th South. Mm-hmm. And... It, they ran a bookstore out of the front room of their home, which is awesome. They eventually bought the home right next door to the home that they lived in, and the home next door was their bookstore. Right. Okay. They are the authors of more than 40 books on Mormonism. 40. And I have some of their earlier stuff do that's you? done on mimeograph. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine having to do that. The, Everything the amount- would have to be typed up, yep. you know, and corrected and then run off on those. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They did, like, the painstaking mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. like, back when it was not easy, mm-hmm. when it was, oh, my gosh. The red book. That's the like, red book. It's, like, a thousand that. pages. Yeah. It's huge. It is. Yeah. So, they they point out in their, in most of their books, they are essentially 
pointing out the historical and theological contradictions in the church and how they don't line up with the Bible. They never lost their faith in God and Jesus and in the Bible. Still not. Still She's not. She's a very devout Christian. Exactly. So. Exactly. So that's what their Lighthouse Ministries is. Mm-hmm. Um, they just lost their faith in Mormonism, the Book of Mormon, the Prophet Joseph. They did not believe he was a prophet, all of those things. They had two daughters and one son. They are known to be the first to expose the multiple versions of the first vision. They believe that Smith invented the details as he went, forgetting and making up versions with the church. (laughs) Um, I I just think, yeah, he he just kept changing his story and... Anyways, but that's normal with right evidence. Right, <laughs> the the apologists believe that the reason for different versions is just due to um, him speaking to different audiences. Okay, but, yeah, but you don't forget about the devil. Yeah, <laughs> and you don't forget that it's an angel versus God and Jesus, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, all this kind so, of stuff. Yeah, was there something you wanted I, to share? No, I was no. just thinking that Von Brody brought out that there were more that I might. That there were more um, versions of the first vision. Oh. I think she did. She might have. But I'd have to read because yeah. I read so much. I don't know. Who's okay. Going. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. No, you're good. So um, the Tanners have specialized in publishing original documents that would otherwise be inaccessible to the general public. For example, in 1966, they were the first to publish Joseph Smith's Egyptian alphabet and grammar. Mm-hmm. So they blew the lid off the book of Abraham. The Tanners have also published photomechanical reproductions of texts, such as complete sets of early LDS periodicals, including Messenger and Advocate, Times and Seasons, and the Millennial Star. And that is no joke, a crap ton of work that they had to do. Also notable is a reproduction of the 1825 edition of Ethan Smith's View of the Hebrews. Their version contains the margin notes made by Elder B.H. Roberts, who compared this text with the Book of Mormon. At the request of an LDS leader. Oh, I want to see that. Yeah. His report was initially kept secret, but it gradually was distributed within Mormon circles and was published posthumously as part of the Book of Mormon study, also known as the Studies of the Book of Mormon, a parallel. So the Tanners have published compiled lists of changes to the text of the Book of Mormon, which is like... I don't know, over like 6,000 changes or something insane like that. And so they have gone through and like compared one version to the next, to the next, to the next. I mean, I just can't imagine the amount of work that they've had to go to to do that. Um, They argue that the alterations are substantial and that the inconsistencies Mm -hmm. in the text are evidence against the LDS claims of being divinely inspired. Because the church will claim every single time that they're just minor grammatical errors. Yes, which is a joke. Uh I mean, it goes from the son of God. No, what is it? To, from 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 being the... That Being Jesus was God, God to the Son of the God. Son of That's God. a little more than a grammatical error. Yeah, so, but they anyway. can try to say, "Oh, but it's yeah. just a couple words." Well, yeah. those couple words make all yeah. the difference. Yeah, a semicolon can make a yeah. lot of difference too. Yeah. It makes it a completely different thing. So, yeah. So let's see. The best known publication produced by the Tanners is Mormonism: Shadow or Reality. That's, the, That's big the big red book, red book that yep. you talked about. Mm-hmm. It was originally yeah. published in 1963 as Mormonism, a study of Mormon history and doctrine, um, but it's been reprinted five times since. And it is actually thicker than some of the doctoral dissertations I read. 
Interesting. Okay, I have not read it yet. I need to. So the the Tanners were kind of some of the first to question the character and integrity of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. They discussed the different accounts that Joseph Smith gave of the first vision. Of course, I already mentioned that. And their book includes copies of original LDS documents. The Tanners were among the first public critics of the forger Mark Hoffman. Hoffman. So back when Hoffman's discoveries of important Mormon documents had secretly been forged. And I mean, the church was buying them up Mm -hmm. and totally believing them. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about this is that this could have, this could have bolstered the Tanner's argument Mm -hmm. if they had believed in it. But instead, Gerald Tanner publicly said, Mm -hmm. I doubt church authorities. Yes. He said, I don't think this guy is legit. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the salamander letter is authentic. And he even went so far as to publish an attack on the Salamander Letter. And this was shocking at the time to scholars, historians, and students who believed that the document was genuine. Mm-hmm. But by late 1984, it was discovered that he, he was a liar and, but, but and ended up being a murderer. But at the time, too, they were, try, they were purchasing these. But yes. they were trying to keep it from the, the public. From the general public. From the general public. That's exactly so, why they were purchasing yeah. them. They're yeah, like, exactly. oh, shit, he's got all this stuff that we don't want people to know. Right. So they're buying it. So they didn't want it. Gerald drawing attention to it either. Ah. Even though he was, you know, and so they, they just didn't want the attention there. This is so Interesting. Anyway. Interesting. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, that's, that's <laughs> totally right. So I just have a couple more quotes about them. So this says, uh, the Tanners, pound for pound, year after year, have been the most successful opponents of the church. This is a quote by Daniel Peterson. He is a professor of Islamic studies and Arabic at Brigham Young University. Mm-hmm. And then he and then he adds at the end of that quote, I do not mean that as a compliment. <laughs> okay. So here's a quote from Sandra. She says, I deal with the heartache every day of people who've left the church and have lost not only friends, but their family. Now with our website, I get emails from a lot of Mormon kids with questions. Somehow they find us. We've always been called anti-Mormons. We make people uncomfortable. And so if they can call you anti, then they can dismiss your work as a lie. She says they go by the concept that truth makes you happy. And if you feel uncomfortable, then it can't be true. But in reality, we all know that there are many truths in life that don't make us happy, but it does not change the facts. Gerald that died is in so good. That, I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the church really right wants, there. yeah. Mm-hmm. The church really wants to paint it as, oh, that information makes you unhappy. It must not be true. That it makes that you uncomfortable. Feels, that makes you feel angry and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The truth often makes you feel uncomfortable. Exactly. Just, yeah, this is exactly that. right. And she did embrace it. So, yeah. So, in 2000, I want to say it was around 2004 that they were thinking about retiring and just, you know, passing the baton to the next Mm -hmm. group of people. Well, they never did retire. And Gerald died in 2006 of complications related to Alzheimer's. So when he passed, she decided to just continue the ministry. So she has done it by herself for the last 16 years. And she now plans on retiring next month and closing the doors of her bookstore. Oh, I did not know that. You didn't? I didn't yeah. know that. So this last summer. Because I've been in the bookstore. It's have you? I've it never been the there. I think I need to go it. before she it. closes the doors. Mm-hmm. So last summer, 
she sold her home and the building for that's the Lighthouse Ministries. They've both been sold, but she's leasing it back until, until. the end of February. I did not know that. Yeah, I might have to go try and visit yeah. but before it's closed. So, yeah, in an article in the Salt Lake Tribune, um, they did just a couple of months ago. They called her the matriarch of anti-Mormonism's modern era. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah, for 60 Great years, title. she's lived in that home on West Temple. And with the Lighthouse Ministries bookstore next door. So, yeah, she, she you know, she's, I want to say she's like 81 or something. She is yeah, way past is, the age of yeah. retirement, mm-hmm. you know, and she's just carried this on on her own for so long. And I'm sure it's been exhausting work. Yeah. I think that she's already moved out of the home. I think she's living in Sandy right now, but she is still running the bookstore until the end of February. She's going to stay in Utah, though. Yes, she is staying in Utah. She has a new home in Sandy, and um, developers have bought that property, and they're tearing it down. Oh, that's so sad. I know. I really did like that. It's so sad. There's going to be an apartment complex there, of course. course. (laughs) Any piece of land where they can build an apartment complex right now, is that's what's happening. No, No. it's either an apartment (laughs) complex, a maverick, or an LDS church. (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) Uh, I think the LDS church building is halting. I do too. You know, I bet, I I haven't looked into this, but I have not seen a new LDS church being Mm -hmm. built in quite a while. All I'm seeing now is temples. Churches are not money makers. The temples temples will be, yeah. Are the money makers because you have to pay tithing to get into the temple. So that's my, mm, I don't know, that's probably conjecture. I think it has more to do with the fact that. If you build a temple and you first, before you announce the temple, you buy the land around it, then uh, the subdivisions become the money makers. The money makers. Yeah, look into that a little bit. Yes. It's interesting. They buy a huge piece of land. <laughs> mm-hmm. They sell off part of it to a developer, mm-hmm. which they can sell it the, for way more if they're going to build well, houses on not it. Not only that, but the developers are pretty special. So uh, anyway. Usually connected to the uh-huh. church somehow. I knew uh, near me a family who owned a big, huge piece of land and they heard rumors that the church was going to want to build a temple in the nearby area. So they donated the land to the church. Oh, that was smart. Hoping that they would get a temple built like in their backyard because they Uh had homes along this street and they owned all the land behind it. Guess what the church did? They developed it. They sold it to a developer developer. who's putting storage units in there. Okay. Yeah. And these guys are so pissed. And I just think it's hilarious. Me. I'm like, you know what? So, you give the land to the church, they get to do whatever they want with it. Yeah. I've, and they are I've building had, a temple like a half mile away, by the way. Oh, yeah. They bought some, they got some other land. I've had some yeah. firsthand experience with the real estate arm of the church. And it's One not day pretty. We'll go into that. Yeah. yeah. It's not pretty. I think we talked, to, did we talk a little bit about that in the last episode that we recorded? Maybe. I can't remember. I think we just barely touched on it. We didn't go yeah. into depth, but. Yeah. A whole, a whole different little dragon there. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway. Okay, okay. last one. My last one. We'll go fast. Okay. This is Kate Kelly. So, I have to I have to admit, I chose Kate Kelly because of her drive and her fervor, mm-hmm. not because of the her her cause. Yeah. Because I sir, I personally, I, I think it's wonderful, but I personally couldn't relate to it. Yeah. Because when I was in the church... 
I didn't have any, des- I had no desire for yeah, the priesthood. And too. now that I'm out of the church, I think it's bullshit. So why have the, the why would the, you want it? But, but yeah. I love the fact that she does not back down. Yeah. In fact, um, opposition just drives her <laughs> to be even I, yeah, more. Yeah. yeah. So she was born in Arizona and she was born Kathleen Marie Kelly. Um, she was one of five children. She grew up in Oregon. Her mother is an attorney and her father is a retired newspaper publisher and university and administrator. And so you can imagine the yep. conversations in their home, too. Mm-hmm. Um, they were both converts to the church. Okay. So that opens a little bit right there. Her father served as bishop, and Kelly is very intelligent and very articulate. Yes. She's, um, she was a devoted member of the church, and she served an 18-month mission in Barcelona, Spain. Mm-hmm. So she's also very, um, she's fluent in Spanish. She married Neil Ransom in 2006 in the Salt Lake Temple. So you can see that she was checking all the boxes. Mm-hmm. And she graduated from BYU in 2006 with a BA in political science. So you know she's BYU. headed in law somewhere. Yeah. And what, not that all political science majors go into law, but a good but, percent of them do. Yeah. So while at BYU, she was a bit of a troublemaker. <laughs> she wrote some controversial articles and participated really? in some social protests. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know They this. fired a guy for, um, what was it? An employee for, can't even remember what it was. And she held a protest for him. She felt like he was yeah. wrongly yeah. fired. Yep. Okay. In 2010, she for- founded Mormon May Day. As a day for liberal and radical church members to come together for progressive themes. And they fast. Interesting. (laughs) I thought that was pretty cool. Okay. In 2013, she organized Ordain Women. And this is what got her in trouble. Yeah. Local church leaders asked Kelly to cease her campaign. Mm. So (laughs) this is why I love her. In response to that, she demonstrated at the April conference. (laughs) What was that? Six months later? (laughs) Cease and desist. And she's like, nope, we're going bigger. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then she she was excommunicated in June. So she did this demonstration in April and by June they excommunicated her. That was quick, actually. My, for for whatever reason, my recollection of this whole thing, and of course I was in the church, so Uh I really wasn't following the story very much. Mm -hmm. But to me, it seemed like it had been going on for a long time, but that was pretty quick. They were swift yeah, they to were like swift, give her the boot. Swift with the axe. Oh yep. my God. Okay. She, was, so she um, did not attend her disciplinary council, but she submitted written defense. And I think she used mm. an attorney for her written defense. I mean, she is an attorney. Yes. But I think she used an, an outside attorney for, for that too. I don't think I would go to even a bishop's disciplinary hearing without some kind of representation yeah they might they probably wouldn't let you in maybe not but maybe they don't like, let you yeah have anyway. representation anyway um so this was in the post of her they have a is it a blog or ordained women has its own yeah it's got their own website yeah, website yeah. and it, it just talks about her excommunication. The verdict has been handed down in this disciplinary trial of Kate Kelly, one of the founders of the group of ordained women today. Kelly's former ecclesiastical leader in Virginia, Bishop Mark Harrison, love how they named him, contacted <laughs> Kelly by email to inform her that her that the all male panel of judges who tried her in absentia. It, on Sunday, June 22nd, has convicted her on the charges of apostasy and has decided to excommunicate her, which is the most serious punishment that they can be level, levied by the 
church court. Bishop Harrison explained that the consequences of excommunication and the conditions has he has has imposed upon Kelly in order for her to consider to be worthy for rebaptism in the church. And it says, in order to be considered for rebaptism, she will need to demonstrate over a period of time that you have, this is quote, a quote, you have stopped teaching and actions that undermine the church, its leaders, and the doctrine of the priesthood. You must be truthful in your communication with others regarding matters that involve your priesthood leaders, including the administration of church discipline discipline and you must stop trying to gain a following for yourself or your cause and taking actions that could lead others away from the church wow she this is her what she says the decision to force me outside my congregation and community is exceptionally painful today it is is a tragic day for my family and me as we process the many ways this will impact us both in this life and in the eternities i love the gospel and the courage of its people Kelly urged the followers to stay in the church and raise hell. <gasps> if they could do so while... <laughs> I love this part. If they could do so while maintaining their mental and emotional health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that Good a, luck with that. generation, you yes. know, that's like, oh, do, oh, do it only if it's going to keep... stay. You're going to yeah. stay healthy. So she appealed her excommunication, but the appeal was rejected by both her state presidency and the first presidency. So that mm-hmm. tells me... It come from the top. It oh, was yeah. a get it done quick. Kind oh of, yeah, kind of thing, and it's because so. she went to conference, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they wanted all they wanted to do was go into conference. They wanted to attend com- the the priesthood session of conference. A conference. I that's do what, remember that. Yeah, yeah. that's what yeah. they were protesting. They yeah. wanted to be able to attend. That's yeah. it. And they had women on the outside. The church had women on the outside. Trying to explain why they couldn't go in. And my thoughts right there Ooh. go to Joseph Smith and his older women. and yep. Nancy so, Miranda Hyde, yeah. who was so, a recruiter yeah, for him. Yeah. Recruiters. Exactly. They had their recruiters on the outside. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's Kate Kelly. Well, and I think Kate Kelly did make a difference because after that whole thing, Women started being able to pray mm-hmm. in general conference. And witness baptisms. And witness baptisms. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's so pathetic. I'm so glad they realized we're capable of that. <laughs> that we have eyes to see. <laughs> yeah. It's so pathetic. Oh, it's still a step, it but is. it's quite a pathetic a step. step. Yeah. yeah. And I think it, it's still so sad to me like how little they just give women just tiny mm-hmm. little morsels and then mm-hmm. women are so grateful for just it. enough to keep them satisfied keep them coming and back. quiet mm-hmm. yeah so <sighs> anyway well i have loved this because it has really made me feel like my mormon heritage isn't all bad like like there's a lot of badass women that have come before us and they've right. like paved the way <laughs> yeah. for us to be able to be badasses ourselves yeah. right yeah and I've only begun the research because oh, yeah. I want to find out the ones that you know yes. never did embrace it and yeah. knew it was bullcrap from the very beginning. From the beginning. I love yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe we'll do more episodes because be we great. had a hard time choosing just yeah, 10 know. women this, to that do. That was hard. And um, I think we're going to probably so. have to split this episode into multiples because it's been over two oh. hours. So we'll probably put it in, yeah. in two episodes. But do I love it. you want me to tell you, though, a thought I had? Yes. Is the, another... The others that are, could be 
in this group of badass or whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call it, dissonant daughters, Mm -hmm. are your listeners. Yes. And have the courage to at least start stepping away and and find their voice. And so kudos to you. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) A dissident, by definition, is somebody who rejects a system, mm-hmm. a status quo, um, an organization, a whatever. Yeah, status mm-hmm. quo, and that is why I chose that name for my mm-hmm. podcast, Dissident Daughters, because right. we we are speaking out against this system, mm-hmm. against this religious system, organization, whatever you want to call it. It's a corporation, and. That's what we're here to speak out against them because we reject it. We do not, I do not want to be held down by their rules anymore. And that's part of the whole thing. So yeah, it does make me think about the whole um, excommunication thing. Like if they ever came after me and wanted to excommunicate me, would I, would I attend my excommunication council? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I I like, what's the one that wrote the CES letter? Jeremy Reynolds. Jeremy what Reynolds, did he do? the way he did it. I don't know. Some, I Now, don't quote me on this because I, it's been a long time since I heard it, but I think he took his papers in ah. and he asked a few questions, and when they couldn't give him answers, he says, well, I have excommunicated the church for my life. Oh, and I'm not, you know, I'm yeah. not sure exactly how I would want to be but, like, I excommunicate you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's because I wouldn't want, I wouldn't sit there. And let no. them question me. Why like should it. our fate be in their yeah. hands? Why do they get a decision yeah. about what we're doing? No. Yeah. And then stand up and give you a hug. Oh, oh barf. Yeah. I'd barf on their shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why we love you. This is why we love you. Thank you so much for being here. This has been so fun. And we'll see you next time. If you enjoy this content and it's been helpful for you, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a review if you love us. And finally, if you feel so inclined, I would really appreciate financial support in this work. You can go to dissidentdaughters.org and donate, or you can go to mormondiscussionpodcast.org and choose Dissident Daughters in the drop-down menu when you go to set up your donation. You can do a one-time donation or better yet, set up a monthly donation of even five bucks. If you've left the church recently, you've probably experienced a 10% income increase. And here's a place where you can donate and know that you are supporting a fellow dissident daughter who wants to stick around and keep providing a supportive space for deconstructing our faith together. Thanks for all your support.